0: Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights, brought to you by Lumina Health Partners, a national healthcare consulting firm focused on improving the strategic, financial, and operational performance of provider organizations. On this program, we will explore trends and share valuable insights on how health systems and medical groups can optimize their performance to meet the demands of this increasingly complex healthcare environment and shift to transform the delivery of care. Value-Based Care Insights is hosted by Daniel Marino, Managing Partner of Lumina Health Partners. Daniel has been in the industry for over three decades and specializes in shaping strategic initiatives for organizations in areas such as population health, clinical integration, physician alignment, information technology, and data analytics. For additional insights, visit lumina.hp.com and sign up for our newsletter. Dan, over to you.
1: Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights. I am your host, Daniel Marino. Every year at this time, we take a look back at the most popular episodes as identified by you, our listeners, or maybe those episodes that addressed the relevant issues that we saw in this past year. Well, we have three episodes that we want to highlight this year, and we're going to play snippets of those episodes during today's program. In 2023, hospitals continued to be under financial pressures, and some of those pressures resulted with reimbursements, some were some challenges with supply costs and wage inflation, as well as just some of the strategic positioning. Well, one of the programs that we had, um, I I really enjoyed the conversation. It was with the CFO of Houston Physician Hospital, Nellie Jasami. Nellie discussed not only those challenges with reimbursement and supply costs but also discussed what their organization is doing with improving the culture and really engaging their employees which really made a difference in 2022 and in 2023. Let's give it a listen. So Nellie given those above challenges that I mentioned and and some of the things that are identified in the Kaufman Hall National Hospital flash report. What are you seeing as, as some of the major issues affecting Houston Physicians Hospital financial performance?
2: I think the two major drivers for Houston Physicians Hospital is the reimbursement pressures from the payers. We are in the last 18 to 24 months, we've had to go into renegotiations with a, with a few payers, and it's we got beat up, Dan. We got, we got yeah. knockout actually on one of them. We just got knocked out. And the other one is uh, supply costs, um, which is not, not, I mean, we're seeing that everywhere. Every hospital is dealing with that. And so we're doing some things that are help, helping us offset those increases in supply costs that we can talk about later.
1: Well, and, and as you know, you know, Revenue is one side of the equation, but your expenses and how you structure those are, are the other. And if your expenses are going up, you know, you can't just automatically increase your revenues. Your revenues are fixed and tied into the to the payers.
2: That's correct. Yes. And so we we've definitely started increasing the revenue and, and not through rates, but through volume. Right. And the volume growth is is helping us help offset the right impact.
1: Have you focused more on surgeries um, or is there an ambulatory component either through the ASC or maybe through some of your therapies that are figuring into your volume expansion?
2: Yeah. So We've definitely brought in different types of surgeons. So we've opened up a, um, not opened up, but we've definitely expanded mm-hmm. our robotics services through the GYN and general surgeries. And so we bought a DaVinci last year. And oh, great. It's, yeah. So just because, you know, I mean, that that's definitely, it's, it's, for GYN and general surgeons, that's definitely something they want. And we haven't really focused on that, those those service lines before. So we invested in one. Again, that was in play probably three years ago when we made that decision. And it just took a long time to get that here because of all the supply chain issues. So we actually weren't able to launch it till mid last year and it was supposed to be launched much sooner than that. So those were things that we had already we knew that we had to prior to the rep reimbursement pressures coming down the pipeline. Right. So um, you, need, you
1: needed to do something in terms of volume. Yes. You know, I guess the supply chain challenges that you had a couple of years ago potentially worked in your favor, right? Because now you were able to get that and add additional uh, surgeries yep. based on some of the robotics to to support it, which, you know, I think that's that's certainly key. Um, how about some of the turnover and, and the staffing challenges that you've had? Are you seeing a lot of turnover? Is it stabilizing? Are you, are you, you know, particularly in the nursing arena? Um, are, are you able to recruit, or are you still see this a challenge in your organization? It's,
2: it's, I can't say it's a huge issue. Our turnover rates are, are much lower than what I see around the market. But it's still a problem, right? Um, it, because every time someone leaves, the cost of bringing them back is so much more, plus the training cost and everything, sure. right? Um, I want to say our people, are our, our nurses and our non-clinical staff are happier here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, our turnover rate is, is lower, but yeah, we still have the challenges. Of course we do, because the nurses and especially, you know, on our... On the inpatient and in the surgery world, that's where our nurses are, right? Um, yes, they, they definitely, they, they all talk. They know the market. So, yes, we've had to deal with um, increases and looking at the market rates. We're doing uh, market analysis every six months now. We, we used to never have to do that, right? right? So, HR has processes now where they actually have to look at market uh, market rates and market analysis every six months. That's, in. I mean, Dan, you know, that's crazy. You got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to, because we don't want to be caught off guard. If, you know, if our CSTs are coming to us and like, hey, someone down the street's paying me. X dollar more an hour we don't want to be caught off guard we want to be able to have that knowledge in our back pockets to be able to give them no that's actually not true or yes that this is what we can do and it, it's it's very difficult it's very very difficult but we that's that's the process that we put in place to help for us to be knowledgeable
1: well you have to be competitive right i mean getting yes, that insight that's the only way to be competitive and to be oh, yeah you know, Totally transparent to our our listeners. I've had the the, the wonderful opportunity to work with Houston Physician Hospitals for a number of years. And, Nili, your your leadership team has built a great culture down there. And I've felt time and time again, and I've spoken about this um, with many folks across the country, you have to be competitive on rates. But in order to really manage a lot of the turnover challenges, the financial challenges related to our workforce, you have to create a strong culture, right? You have to create the culture that makes people want to work there. And as you've said, and I agree with you, I think people are happy working in in, in your organization. And we see that a lot of times with smaller community hospitals or with specialty hospitals.
2: Right. Yeah, we definitely, I think I've told you this, Dan, before I came to HPH, you know, I, I came from a more corporate healthcare background, and so the employee engagement here is something I've never experienced anywhere else, and I'm not right. just saying that because I work here, but we put in a lot of effort to have that high employee engagement, um, and it, it's, it takes resources and it takes a lot of time, but it does pay off because our, our turnover rates are so much lower. We still have to deal with the the pressures, right? The external pressures of inflation with, with salary rates. But it's, I, I really do think that's a huge piece of the puzzle is that we put so much into employee engagement. And look, when I first started here, um, our CEO, I, I would be like, wait, we're spending how much in t-shirts? You know, <laughs> we, we give out, you know, we're known for our t-shirts here and you know, but it's it really things.
1: make a difference.
2: It's the little things. It really is. Um, yeah. We, we, we every month we every in my departments um, we spent what there's one thing we focus on every month um, in in the departments and for example last last month we focused on integrity and um, each person had um, a banner and it was what is give give me what your integrity motto is for your for for you as an as a person right and so everyone and again and, and it wasn't all across the hospital, but for all my departments, they did their right. individual one. But across the hospital, what we did was every department made their own banner, and then we were able to hang it up in, in our um, cafeteria area, and everyone could see what everyone's motto was in terms of integrity. That's one of our mission statements that we believe in. And so it's just we, we really do focus on that. And this right. month, we have something else that we're doing. But
1: yeah, and the culture piece yeah. is so, I mean, it's huge. huge yeah in twenty twenty three medical groups were also impacted quite a bit. And as we reflect back on what had transpired with a lot of our medical groups, many continued to look to their hospital partners for employment. Others decided to align with these for-profit organizations like CVS, Optum. Optum continued to employ many of the independent medical groups and providers in 2023, as well as many groups decided to align with private equity. Well, in this episode, I was joined by Jeff Peters. Jeff is a national expert on the physician provider space medical group Strategy. And we discuss three areas that really impacted medical groups this past year access being one of them, physician well being, and different areas that are affecting strategic growth. Let's listen in. So, Jeff, when you reflect back on where some of these independent medical groups are, these different hospitals, and through your career, close to 40 some years, you've been doing this, you've worked with over 500 organizations across the country. How have you seen these challenges evolve over the years? Yeah, so um,
3: I really thought about the fact that when I first created an employed physician group at Ingalls Hospital, which is now part of the University of Chicago health system and the financials are coming out to the board and the board, is just overwhelmingly perplexed as to how we could possibly run physician practices that are losing $30,000 per physician per primary care. And now when you see the losses over $100,000, I'm sort of thinking, what were they worried about? That was great. (laughs) I mean, really? You're beating me up over this, Um, but we didn't have data on own practices. And, you know, it's very clear what the problem is. There's more need, demand for physicians and advanced providers than there are supply. So you have to pay more to attract and retain um, physicians. And you also have to pay more for their support staff.
1: Yeah, for but, their support staff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think the, mm-hmm. you know, when when I, ref- and as well as with you, I, I talk to many leaders all the time across the country. Access is the number one issue that they struggle with. Wage inflation, if it's not number one, it's a close number two. Um and retaining the staff is really key, as well as then physician well-being. So, so let's talk a little bit about access, though. You know, if you've got limited number of providers, you've got more demand than you do with supply, what are you seeing on some of these strategies? How are organizations, how how are they dealing with some of this?
3: Well, I think the first thing is that you've got to assemble teams to manage um a group of patients. It's not only physicians, it's advanced practice providers and um, in, in more quaternary tertiary practices, nurses. And you need to allow the advanced practice provider to see the patients that they're qualified to see. And you need to reserve the physician's time for the more complex patients so the the idea that we're always going to see a physician it, it's just not going to happen i mean yeah. recently i had a annual skin exam i called my dermatologist i was scheduled with an advanced practice provider I thought she did a fabulous job. Um, She was thorough and personable and identified things. So we've got to be creative in terms of our workforce. And we've got to save physicians time. When I go to my ENT with a sinus infection, there's a medical assistant who's assisting him with the scope and just getting everything ready. And he has a scribe wow uh, and he's dictating as he's seeing me what's going on and he's able to really make efficient use of his time so we've got to be creative
1: yeah. and, and and really innovative right these in, what you just described are these innovative care models around team based care around helping the physician succeed and innovation in the care models, I fully agree with you. That's how we're gonna help to kind of work through some of these access challenges. I think without doing that, the traditional model is not sustainable.
3: No, and physicians like the team model. Um, A lot of the work that the team is doing is work that physicians um, don't like to do, the charting and the things like this. I mean, you hear physicians complaining about the fact that at the end of the day, they're spending one or two hours on the EMR getting caught up with their documentation to save them an hour or two a day. Phenomenal. And the other thing is just handling the telephone and the patient calls that come in and the emails that go to the physician. We've got to be creative in identifying what work Can we take away from the physicians that gives our patients the care that they need and deserve, yet
1: doesn't burden our um, high-cost providers? I absolutely agree. I I think as we're thinking about the future strategy of of medical groups, whether you're independent or employed, these innovations that you spoke about, this way of of kind of uh, making the physicians more efficient spot on. I, I I absolutely see that as a necessity of performance. Let, let's talk a little bit about growth though. Um, you know, obviously everybody's concerned about growth and and especially if your expenses are increasing, you can't necessarily cut services, you cut can't cut staff. I think we're probably as lean as we've ever been. You have to focus on increasing the patient volume. You have to focus on increasing revenue in your opinion, where where, where are some of those key growth initiatives that help to kind of drive the financial performance?
3: Yeah, and and I think there's been models in the market for a very long time. Multi-specialty groups are very profitable, and they tend to attract and retain providers. And single specialty groups like urology, where you're able to get all the urologists in a market to come together so that they um, not only share practice overhead, but then it supports um, pathology, it supports imaging uh, and treatment for it makes sense. So what the growth has to focus on is getting a large enough group of providers that drives ancillary revenue, you're not gonna make your money on the profitability of a physician practice where you're gonna make your money, particularly for academic medical centers or hospital practices in establishing integrated ambulatory campuses where there's urgent aid to take care of the patients, that don't have a primary care or don't want to wait. That primary care um, surrounded by specialists So the urgent aid for the patient that doesn't have a physician can refer that patient to the primary care. So there's an ongoing relationship. As that primary care picks up a heart murmur, there's a cardiologist in the building that they can refer them to. And there's a spectrum of diagnostics and treatment. What we're seeing is, um, and the University of Chicago has been masterful at this, creating these integrated campuses with urgent aid,
1: primary care, secondary care. Um, right. safety- so it's all sort of integrated and it's it's right there for the patient and for the physicians. So you can actually have create more of a, a longitudinal care model, getting the results that you need. In 2023, our industry saw a continued influence in Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage continued to grow, and as all of us know, if you're continuing to look at a lot of the news and and the direction, Medicare Advantage into 2024 is going to be one of those topics that we're going to see continued growth. As well as Medicare Advantage, though, risk-based arrangements also impacted our physicians, our medical groups, our hospitals, our health systems, and so forth. In June of last year, I was joined by my colleague, Cliff Frank. And we had a great discussion on the rapidly changing Medicare Advantage products, as well as some of the risk-based arrangements. Cliff always provides great insights, along with a little bit of entertaining conversation. Let's listen into this episode. So Cliff, help us make sense of this. What are you seeing in terms of some of these changes? There's been a lot going on just in, in the last month, month and a half or so.
4: Well, CMS has been taking a lot of heat from Congress and from industry observers that they kind of gave away the store for the last 10 years. So on basically uncapped risk adjustment. Now, they signaled with some of the ACO products a willingness to change that in that they capped the risk or gain you could get in in MSSP ACO is at 3% over multiple years uh whereas it's uncapped in Medicare advantage until 2024 right with the new with the new regs they're signaling that that gain is going to end in several ways first they're making it harder to actually get risk adjustment a lot of di- they went from ICD9 to ICD ICD 10 or 10 to 11 I forget which but anyway they they killed a lot of diagnoses that adjust there were like 2000 diagnoses right. there was a lot right? it, particularly in diabetes those are gone they don't they don't get you more risk points then the second thing they did was they said oh we're going to really start auditing um a lot more closely and it's it's not it, and, and the risk scores have to come in through claims not through some magical home visit that that the plan has has orchestrated so they're really kind of making all that much more difficult at the same time uh cms has signaled a, a rapidly growing interest in measuring and enticing health plans to tackle health equity and and so as if you kind of think of it as a, as a kind of a teeter-totter, um, as, as the health equity side goes up, the risk score side goes down in terms of dollars. So the dollars will still be there, but they'll be there for different reasons right. in two years.
1: Right. So there's really you know, two, two key things that I've seen. I think it's it's thinking about how we're positioning ourselves for risk, within risk managing risk, identifying risk within the contracts, you know, that that's a big one. And then the health equity piece and, and where that comes into play. Let's start with the risk piece because I have a few questions here that I'm kind of working through in my mind. So, I, you know, I'm kind of thinking that there's two pieces to this, right? You know, we spent a lot of time as providers talking about the fact that we need to capture HCCs and that HCCs are supporting the RAF scores. And the RAF scores, Give us a better idea on the the sickness, if you will, of our population, of which then dollars are tied to that, you know. And 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 a lot of providers have spent a lot of time educating their 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 physicians and monitoring it, and and almost going back and recalculating that. Was that in particular? Was it wrong? I mean, did we overstate it? Oh, not at all. So much focus no, on all, this.
4: That's all good stuff for lots of different reasons. Um, the first is that uh, providers like to compare themselves against each other.
2: You're right. And, yes.
4: And so if my per member per month spend is 20% higher than you, of course, the first thing I'm, you know, I'm going to whine about it. Well, my patients are sicker. Yeah, so my
1: population's patients,
4: sicker. Right. So so the RAF scores actually level that that debate, which then moves us to the next level, which is. What are you doing that I'm not doing? What are you not doing that I'm doing? Let's have a conversation about clinical pa- use utilization patterns. So, you can't have that without some sort of severity adjustment, risk adjustment, population standardization. So, regardless of what else happens inside CMS in the deal between the payer and the provider, it's really useful information. Then Further to have some indicator as to what's changing in your in a particular patient, their risk score just jumped 30%. Well, there's an indicator for some case management intervention, some care support, some further love and attention from the doctor. Uh, it could be, you know, referral to a specialist. Could be any number of things. But it's an early indicate. It can be an early indicator of a problem that's coming hard and fast at the member and at, at, the, at the provider network. So, right. so all those things still have plenty of value regardless of what else happens. And then the third is, remember risk scores can go down. So sure. CMS isn't saying, oh, we'll insulate you from the down as much as we cap you on the up. You know, if, if you if you fall asleep on risk scores and suddenly you drop two or three points, guess what? and you've got a percent of premium deal, your revenue just went down.
1: (laughs) You just went down. Yeah. So the performance model still has to be there, right? It still has to be sound. You still have to manage that population around cost of care, around utilization. And then you have to accurately identify the risk. I think the key to it, though, is that if the risk is going up, if the cost of care is going up, and, and even, you know, if it's based on overutilization, as you mentioned, some interventions around care inter- care um, management has to come into play and you have to show that you're taking some responsibility to, to manage that. I think as we start to think about it, the model has to be clean, but we also have to prepare for some type of audit or some type of realization that this may be questioned, right? So we, we've got to get back to the data, the model, and the clinical performance to be able to show that, hey, what we're doing is is actually the right thing to be done.
4: I think all that is true. There's there are plenty of places for CMS to come looking. And and I mean it starts with RPM, CCM, telehealth. I mean, lots of new areas that are have, have been exposed already to some pretty significant frauds. So they're looking. And then um you have their relationship with the plans, which now cut through to the provider because it's the provider providing the claims information. So they're going to want to see the documentation that supports that. Yeah. So if you're just submitting diagnoses with no documentation, good luck. That's going to be a problem.
1: I'm going to thank all of our listeners for tuning in without your support your interest, your feedback. Our program, our episodes would never be as successful as it is. For anyone wanting to share their opinions or their comments or even suggestions for additional topics, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. My email is dmarino at luminahp.com. As we close 2023 We're looking into 2024 with some wonderful topics and some real fascinating guests. We're looking forward to bringing that to you in the new year. Until then, I wanna wish all of you a very happy holiday season and a very healthy and prosperous 2024. And as always, until the next Insight, I am Daniel Marino, bringing you 30 minutes of value to your day. Take care.
0: Are you at a crossroad with value-based care? Do you need to chart a future strategy or improve your organizational performance? Visit us at luminahp.com to learn more about our consulting services and leadership development programs. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. For more information about value-based care insights, visit the program's page on healthcareradionow.com or luminahp.com. Join the conversation using our hashtag VBC Insights. We are Lumina Health Partners. Thank you for joining us today. Until the next value-based care insight, stay well.